This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome, everyone who's here for uh, uh, this Dharma Talk and this morning program. As you may have heard, we are in a weekend retreat right now. So we've been cultivating silence and um, stillness since last night. And we will continue to cultivate silence and stillness through tomorrow afternoon. The topic of this retreat is training in compassion. And it's an interesting thing to talk about in, uh, in a Zen context, I think. In Zen, I think that... Uh, there's a, a bit of a, um, maybe, I don't know, maybe complaint might be a word. Sometimes practitioners feel like, where's the compassion? Where's the compassion in Zen practice? There's a lot of yelling and hitting. Not, not so much here. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but there's not a lot of talk about compassion specifically in the Zen stories. There are very, very few stories, the Zen koans and the Zen literature. There are very few explicit discussions and practice instructions about cultivating compassion. So uh, this is a bit of a, uh, we're, we're um, working through these compassion practices through another tradition, through the Tibetan tradition of Lojong, mind training. And that's our topic for this practice period is uh, tra- mind training through the 59 slogans of Lojong practice. And then this retreat, we get to spread our wings a little bit and go beyond our usual just sitting, which I'll say a little bit about what that means in a moment. But we're taking up particular practices Uh, we'll be doing that during this retreat. You may not, for those of you who have been in the retreat already, or those of you who have been at any Zen retreat or any Zen center or even just one period of meditation, maybe you've noticed that we've already been practicing compassion. We like to practice it without talking about it, actually. It's kind of an interesting thing. So it may end up that you come to a Zen center and you practice for a while and you think, Where's the compassion? Not recognizing that as soon as you set foot in the door, you're entering into a world where wisdom and compassion are joined, and everything that we do is a reflection of the joining of wisdom and compassion. Again, it's not explicit so much in Zen schools. The, um, there is one Zen story, which I will, I will read. That's explicitly about compassion. This is case 89 of the Blue Cliff Record. And it features one of our Zen ancestors, actually the grandfather, you can call him the grandfather of Soto Zen in China, Yunyan. Who's, uh, who went on to um, 
transmit to Dongshan Liangji, who is in our lineage. Many of you have heard this story many times. This is Yunyan's great compassion. In it, Yunyan asks Dawu, how does the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin use those many hands and eyes? So as many of you know, the Bodhisattva of compassion, Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin, is oftentimes depicted as a 1,000-armed being. And if you see the tanka, sometimes there's tankas or statues where there's a single person, sometimes with one head, sometimes with nine heads. There's a story there. But also with 1,000 arms, and 1,000, each arm has a hand, and in each hand there's an eye. Sometimes there's an eyeball in the hands. And other times you see the depiction of 1,000 arms and hands with each hand holding a different implement, some useful thing, like a screwdriver <laughs> or a bottle opener or, <laughs> or a, a vessel of cooling liquid. Oftentimes you see Kuan Yin holding this vessel of cooling liquid. So Dao Wu answers this question that Yunyan asks. How does the Bodhisattva Kuan Yin use those many hands and eyes? And Dao Wu answers, It is like someone in the middle of the night reaching behind her head for a pillow. So what does this mean? Imagine yourself in the middle of the night and somehow your head has fallen off your pillow and your neck is maybe getting a little crick. Right? So you're sitting and lying in bed and your neck feels some discomfort. It is like reaching behind your head for the pillow in the middle of the night. This is meant to evoke, this middle of the night business, is meant to evoke a state where maybe your ego isn't turned on. Maybe you're not thinking. Maybe you're, you've, you're asleep. You're kind of in this half-sleep, half-awake state and you recognize that there's some discomfort. And what do you do in the recognition of discomfort? Alleviate it. Pretty straightforward, yeah? <laughs> you alleviate that discomfort. The impulse, it's not carefully thought out. It's not like there's a, a whole bunch of steps in between feeling the discomfort and reaching back for the pillow. Right? It's, an, it's an immediate response. You might even call it another Zen phrase. You might even call it an appropriate response, which is another koan in our, in our uh, history, which is Yunmen's koan, when asked the question, what is the teaching of a lifetime, or what is the practice of a lifetime? And his answer is an appropriate response. How do we cultivate this appropriate response? How do we train in compassion? In the Zen school, a lot of it is uh, implied, that the training is implied by being uh, in a community. And you've heard me talk probably endlessly about community. <laughs> but being in a community is sometimes challenging because different people come with different ideas 
and opinions and likes and dislikes. And we get to bump up against one another in community. And those, uh, those rough edges kind of, you know, bounce against each other. Potato practice, right? Or uh, sometimes, the, like if you've ever been to uh, the monastery Tassajara, the, the cliffs there kind of shed these jagged rocks and they go into the creek. And in the summer, the creek is pretty, you know, it's pretty meandery, it's slow, it doesn't really make much of a sound. But if you're there in the winter, especially during an El Nino year, that creek gets raging and you hear, just sitting in the zendo, you'll hear the rocks in the creek banging against each other. Like it sounds violent. They're just like crash, crash, crash. Sometimes, you know, whole tree trunks come hurtling down the creek and like hit a rock and splash out. It's very dramatic. But what you notice in the creek when you're walking along, when it's safe to do so and you're not going to be swept away by the current, walking around in the creek in the summer, is that the, the rocks in the creek are smooth. They're smooth stones. They're river rocks that have been worn down. Worn down by beating up against one another, actually. Right? So this compassion business is not necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily gentle, although it can be. Compassion is not necessarily um, nice, but it is kind, it is kind. In this, <clears throat> in this koan, Dawu answers this question that Yunyan poses by bringing up this example of this pillow. And Yunyan, when he hears Dawu's answer, he says, oh yeah, okay, I understand. I get it. But Dawu wants to test him. So he asks, how do you understand this? Yunyan says, all over the body are hands and eyes. All over the body are hands and eyes. So Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara, is considered the bodhisattva of compassion. And also, another term for Avalokiteshvara is the regarder of the cries of the world. So it could be that each of these hands has an ear as well. Dawu says, well, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good answer. But it's only about 80%. In Zen, you'll recognize that, you, that it's, it's always only about 80%, no matter how good. <laughs> it's always only about 80%. And why is that? Why is it only 80%? always room for more understanding? There's always, yes, exactly, there's always room. There's always room for more understanding, and even whatever understanding that you have, whatever understanding that you can come up with, that you can verbalize, that you can say out loud, can never, ever be everything. It can never be all of it. And this expresses another aspect of our practice in Zen, which is the aspect of not knowing completely. We can never know something or someone completely, through and through. There's always room. So Yunyan says, okay, well, how would you say it then, elder brother? 
there's always this back and forth, this play. And Dawu says, throughout the body, our hands and eyes. So elaborating a little bit, adding a little bit of extra on uh, Yunyan's answer, which is all over the body, our hands and eyes, Dawu brings it even deeper, not just all over the body, but throughout the body, our hands and eyes. The hands and eyes, again, like ears, are about responding. They're about reaching out, like reaching out for the pillow in the night. Not reaching out unless there's a need, but reaching out when the need arises. This is Kuan Yin's Bodhisattva, the Bodhisattva Compassion's uh, expression of no, there being no separation throughout the body, no distinction between inside and outside, between self and other. When, a, when suffering manifests, when discomfort arises, the impulse, without thinking of self and other, may arise. When I say that we're practicing this in a Zen temple without us even being aware of it, what I mean is, uh, you've also heard me describe this phrase of Soto Zen that describes our practice, the family business that we do, which is men mitsu no kafu, or careful attention to detail is the family way. This careful attention from the first time you step in the door and you kind of look around, and people are quiet, maybe, <laughs> and you, uh, you see the shoe rack, and there's people's shoes on the shoe rack. And I can see the shoe rack from here, and it's very tidy over there. And people, when you take your shoes off, you're taking your shoes off, why? Why do you take your shoes off? To be respectful of other people, not to bring dirt and stuff from the road out. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We take our shoes off so that we're going to, you know, because we're barefoot in the zendo, and uh, we, we leave the, the, the worldly dust <laughs> on the shoe rack. Now, when you take your shoes off, what are you thinking of? How do you take your shoes off? There are so many ways, right? There's an infinite way, number of ways of taking your shoes off. How did you take your shoes off when you took your shoes off this morning? Very carefully. Did you? (laughs) 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 But very carefully. What would it look like if every action that we take is done for the benefit of all beings? Quite plainly. When we take our shoes off, we take our shoes off for the benefit of all beings. When we bow to our cushion, we pay, uh, when we bow to our cushion before we sit down, it's like somebody has arranged this seat so that we could sit on it. Right? So when we bow to the cushion, it's an opportunity to express some gratitude. And when we turn around and bow to the room, we express gratitude to our fellow sitters. These are invitations. So this tradition that we have, uh, especially we do this, you can, for those of you who are in the retreat, 
slowly, slowly, as we bump up against one another, as we move together, as we pick up chant cards together, or as we are served meals together, as the server and the two people being served bow together, we have this tradition of a very intimately practicing these forms and ceremonies with one another. Oftentimes, as I mentioned, uh, compassion doesn't necessarily look nice, right? It's not necessarily always gentle. And so sometimes when you go to a Zen center, you won't receive any instruction. <laughs> you're kind of thrown in there. And you're, uh, you know, maybe some people may look at that and think, oh, that's really, uh, that's really harsh. Like, actually, you know, why wouldn't we, you know, be more welcoming and, you know, bring people in and say, here's what you do. You do it this way and that way and so forth so that you feel comfortable, right? There are so many stories where the compassionate response ends up actually being to trust people deeply. What does that mean? What does that look like? What are we trusting? Their experience. We're trusting their experience, yes. Mm -hmm. Their ability to figure things out. Yeah, maybe their ability to figure things out for themselves, to, um, to look, to listen, to put into practice. Their intentions. We trust their intentions. Mm-hmm. Their Buddha nature. Say that again. Their Buddha nature. Their Buddha nature. Yeah. What is Buddha nature? Mary, were you going to say? Were you going to say that? Oh, I was just going to say to to decenter. Sorry. So, uh, uh, what, this isn't related to Buddha nature, but as part of what you're doing when you come in, is you, when there's no instruction, you have to get out of your head. And decenter and perspective take and take the other person's point of view. Ah, nicely, and, nicely put. And yeah. that's that all sudden connection. Right. Yeah, it's this kind of beginner's mind, right? When you come into a space, it's obvious that the space is cared for, right? And if you don't know what's uh, what to do, then you have to be what. Receptive, and you have to pay attention. Right. There's a gentleness to that. Right. Now, how many of you have an ego? <laughs> and sometimes your ego kind of comes up without you even noticing it, and it will start thinking and judging and comparing and contrasting. <laughs> And thinking about, like, what's the right way and what's the wrong way? And am I doing it okay? And am I good? And that person may not be doing it the right way either. <laughs> right? And so that, that, that ego self arises. But because we have been cultivating a lot of stillness and silence, right? We're slowing things down here. Because we're cultivating this, sometimes, maybe if we're lucky... Maybe if we're well-versed, well-practiced, well we can see that as it's arising. We can see the ego self arising. Yeah? So what about this Buddha nature business? Yeah, Tim. Maybe one aspect is 
if you're trusting everybody else's Buddha nature, you're trusting their ability to um, find an appropriate response. So if I trust my own ability to find the pillow, then I can trust somebody else's. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Did you all hear that? This trust business. Oftentimes we're told that we have Buddha nature. Do you believe it? That we all have Buddha nature? What does it mean to have Buddha nature? This ability to respond appropriately? Innate, innate wisdom and compassion. An innate wisdom and compassion, or an inherent com- wisdom and compassion that's available. Right? Is it manifesting all the time? It's kind of a potential. <laughs> <laughs> that laugh is precious. <laughs> a potential, right? Ordinary awareness. Ordinary awareness. What is ordinary awareness? There. What's always there is an ordinary awareness. Yeah. Basic. Or embodied. Yeah. Embodied. When you say ordinary, what do you mean? Without adornment? Without hype? The very deep part that is present and alert. That's all. With a deep heart that is present and alert, and that's all. I think that that's all part is really important, right? Nothing special, nothing extra, nothing flowery, maybe. Right? This is getting to that, what I meant by uh, compassion not necessarily being nice. Right? It's not trying. Ordinary in the sense that it's not needing to try, but manifesting spontaneously, maybe. So in Zen practice, there's a lot of this emphasis on just Follow the forms, follow the schedule, show up, pay attention, and trust in your own Buddha nature. Or just trust in, in what's happening. Forget about the idea of Buddha nature. Just trust in uh, your own presence and watching carefully the arising and passing away of impressions, opinions, sense objects, judgments, right? Without clinging. So allowing things to arise and cease, arising and ceasing. That fundamentally underneath that is an ordinary, very ordinary awareness, which is uh, open, curious, and compassionate. When it's not uh, tied up in a kind of ego self, right? A, A selfing, I had a teacher who uh, spent a lot of time talking about Buddha nature. Now, this Buddha nature, which is something that um, we may all have, that manifests without our intending it to do so, but it can be covered over very easily. It can be um, get tied up. Or, or um, not tied up. Buddha nature itself, I think, is like the, the clear sky. It doesn't, it doesn't have to. It doesn't get tied up in anything. It's just there. Right? This ability of ours to be completely present, and open, and spacious, 
It's always there. The ability is there. And oftentimes it's not accessible. Why? Because of our ego grasping. We get in our own way. There's a line this morning during our morning service here, we chanted a, a Dogen Zenji chant. It was a, the instructions, the universal instructions for the practice of Zazen. And in that chant, there's a line, which is uh, it's a very interesting line. He says, Revere the person of complete attainment who is beyond all human agency. What is this beyond all human agency? It's an interesting way of uh, talking about it. What is beyond? Yes, Jacob. Like a non-separateness? Beyond all human agency. Like being an agent. Yeah. So, non-separation, a non-separated sense. Is that what you mean? Yeah, like if you're interconnected and that's kind of uh, that interconnection is, you know, where you're kind of, agency is not going to be dominating at that point. It might still be there in some sense. But. Some sort of willpower, some sort of uh, personal concern. Right? I think of this agency as being, uh, this human agency is kind of like, how do I, how do I get what I need in this world? Right? Max. <clears throat> I wonder if it also has to do with discriminating making decisions on the basis of polarities, should I do this or should I do that, should I accomplish my goal by being harsh or by being gentle, whatever it might be, rather than uh, actively trying to negotiate between uh, apparently opposed forces on something, I don't know, broader. Something broader than trying to negotiate between polarities, yes. between a duality, between like, you know, having a, a, a an idea that it's either this or that, mm-hmm. right? And how you're, I think you're, what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there's a stepping back from that and not getting engaged in operating from that duality. I think so. I mean, if I think of you know a Buddha or a Jesus Christ or something like that, I think that the mental image that I form is of um, someone who uh, almost glides through um, their actions without that kind of um, friction. Stickiness. Yeah, and and, and, and that sense of being torn between separate um, impulses or ideas. Okay. Do you all get that? I think of it more like the breath. I mean, the breath is beyond human agency. We just yeah. don't. We yeah. Don't have They're reaching for that tomorrow. Right. We just do it. We don't have to think about it. We don't have to get tied up around it. There's no stickiness involved. Of course, what happens if we notice some stickiness? In the breath. Sorry. In yeah. the breath? In the breath? Some stickiness? Stickiness in the breath? Sure, some stickiness in the breath. It could be in the breath. It could be in the mind. It could be... We tell a story. What? We start to tell a story. We start to tell ourselves a story. Yes, right. We get stuck somewhere. We we tell ourselves a story. 
Oh, I was just going to say we try to control that too. Yeah, right? We, we try and control. So this is what I mean, I think this is what Dogen means when he talks about beyond human agency. It's that getting caught in a story, trying to control, trying to fix, right? The bodhisattva in the middle of the night who reaches behind the, for the pillow, are they trying to fix something? Is it like, is it a, I think the intention is that there's not a, a fixing so much as a response, a response to a need. But it's not thought out. It's not uh, deliberated, right? So this idea that we have that uh, I was going to say, uh, one of my teachers, Myogen Steve Stuckey, spent a lot of time talking about Buddha nature. Some of you may know him from when he was uh, visited here as a teacher. When he talked about Buddha nature, he talked about it as if it were a, uh, like, a, like a fundamental ground of being that really had nothing to do with us, in a sense. It's really impersonal. It's not tied up in our stories. It's not tied up in our, uh, our likes and dislikes, our personalities. Right? It's kind of like um, if all the, the parts of ourselves that are stuck on something or who want to manipulate or control or uh, fix or strategize, all those different parts of ourselves were to relax. Just imagine all the parts that are anxious or fearful or fretful, right? What if they were all to just relax? What would be left? Just imagine for a moment all of your anxieties any type of, any, any residue of fear or blame or shame, just relaxed. What would be left? Awareness. Awareness. Mm-hmm. Noticing. Yeah. A little bit more, maybe? A spacious kind of way in which you watching but not reacting. Yeah, there's some watching but non some non reactivity, right? What else? What emerges from this ground, this fundamental ground, Stephen? Clarity. Yeah, clarity. Right? You don't get so much uh, I think that, that what Max was talking about of this this tension of like this or that, right? And being like, which way should I go? Right? Clarity comes. What does clarity look like? No big deal. (laughs) (laughs) You you kind of know what to do. You kind of know what to do, right? There's a sense in which there's a a calmness, right? There's not a reactivity, so things are settled. Clarity arises from this this place where where we've uh, let go, maybe, or where... um, those ego parts of ourselves, again, has relaxed, maybe has been satiated, maybe those parts have, uh, have felt met, have been unburdened from whatever it is that they desire, or need, or strive for, right? Getting beyond this human agency, right? this acting as an agent 
on behalf of some plan. This self, I think, the the distinction between self and non-self. What is non-self? When we talk about non-self, the non-self of Buddhism, what is that non-self? Is it the same non-self that manifests as Buddha nature? If all the parts of oneself are relaxed and no longer... Uh, aggravated or frustrated and all there is left is this clarity this calmness this awareness what is self is uh, self could self also be seen as kind of where the discrimination originates kind of self-consciousness yeah yeah so, so yeah, so selfing or discrimination, discriminative consciousness. Mm-hmm. Does Buddha nature do that? Do you think? I, I mean, my feeling about the term is, is that it sort of refers to um, maybe even something similar to, to interdependence. And um, <clears throat> then again, this non-separation keeps popping up. Non-separation, but the thing about the thing about it is that the means by which it functions is through the appearance of separate entities or individuals or beings. So I think that too, um, although we sort of miss the point of it by falling for the optical illusion mm. of, of considering mm. our own separateness mm-hmm. real. Yeah. Um, the appearance of separateness is one of the ways in which the thing functions. It's just that the perception of its functioning is cut off to us when we get too entangled in its appearance. Does that make sense? Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah? I think it makes sense. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I think in unpacking that a little bit, right, it's um, when we get super involved, right, in the appearances of the world, whatever they are, things that, uh, that appear in our consciousness and we get caught, right, that presents us with an ama- um, um, amazing opportunity, just like the stones falling off the cliffs do, when they fall into the creek and they start to bang up against each other, they're not going to become smooth rocks unless they have that action, that function. And in the same way, these appearances that we get bent out of shape over, it's part of the process, right, is our getting bent out of shape. What happens to our Buddha nature when we're getting bent out of shape? Where is it? It's just sitting there smiling. <laughs> yeah, right? It's, it's not getting involved. It doesn't need to fix anything. It's kind of like being a... Um, there's this description that Rev Anderson gave of um, when he had his grandson walking around and his wife, Rusa, was like the grandmother. And walking around, this toddler has just started to walk and was walking around... 
And like, you know, toddlers can, can do quite a bit of damage to themselves if you're not careful, right? In terms of like the implements that they can get in get they can get into. So Reb's describing his wife as basically this walking around with the toddler, making sure that the toddler doesn't get into too much trouble, but at the same time giving a lot of space. Right? It's not like walking around like, don't touch that, don't touch that, don't touch that. But actually giving a lot of space. And then if the toddler comes upon something like, you know, a, a drawer full of knives, it's like, no, 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 we'll just, you know, steer the toddler this way, right? This is grandmotherly mind, right? One of the three minds that Dogen talks about in the Tenzo Kupin. Right? The grandmotherly or grandparental mind where... You show up and you take care when you're needed, but otherwise you kind of let it, let it be, right? Why do you let it be? Because you trust it. Because you trust. There's a deep trust there. This Buddha nature, which uh, we're told is something that we all have, right? There is, in our tradition, there is no one who does not have Buddha nature. There's no, what is, what are they called? An Ichantika, right? someone who's born without Buddha nature. No such thing in our tradition, in this tradition. However, just like the, the, the vast clear blue sky can be occluded by clouds and very stormy ones, right? it may be that the Buddha nature, this <coughs> clarity, this calm, compassionate, uh, uh, creative, but fundamental ground that has no agenda, it has no agency. It's not, it doesn't want anything. It doesn't need anything. It's just there, able to reflect, able to hold this vast spaciousness. But we get clouded over, right? But the things that we get clouded over, amazingly, we think of them as things we need to get rid of. And yet, as Max just eloquently put, they're, the, they're actually the, they're the practice. Imagine if you lived in a heaven realm where you always got your way. We were talking about this in the class the other week. A realm where um, whatever you wanted appeared. How boring would that get? It is through these struggles, these, these parts of ourselves that are afraid or tired, angry, hurt, jealous, all these things that we consider to be afflictive emotions. We can still call them afflictive. Right? We don't like them. We don't have to like them. Right? But when we have the opportunity to touch down deeply into our fundamental awakeness. The grip of these parts of ourselves, this reactivity, has a chance to lessen, has a chance to open a little bit. We might even, through the, through the power of our ability to be present, we might find some curiosity. What is this, right? In this training in compassion, what, we do, what do we do with suffering? What's the first thing that we do? What's an appropriate response to any kind of suffering? Notice. Notice. 
be present. Hold it gently. To hold it gently. Mm-hmm. I'm not hearing like crush it, <laughs> turn away from it. Right. It's actually to turn towards and to be able to um, sit with. Right. So just as I said, when you come into a Zen center, you may not realize that you're training in compassion the whole time. When we sit down and we take our seat and we start to uh, just follow our breath, we are attentive to our body, we see things arising and ceasing, right? And in that coming and going, there can be all kinds of uh, afflictive emotions that rise up, right? We don't invite them in to stay. We let them go. But if there's something that keeps coming up, an afflictive state, what do we do? We send our breath to it, like a cushion, like reaching back for that pillow. We we may not be very well trained in this. Many of us, uh, along the way, developed what we might call an inner critic. That inner critic can wreak havoc And yet, what is the inner critic's intention, ultimately? Prevent suffering. Hmm? Prevent suffering. To prevent suffering, right? Our inner critic is usually, it's actually looking out for us. Do we want to listen to it? Do we want to believe what it says? Sometimes we want to, but does that help to believe in our inner critic? I mean, it depends, right? It depends on the voice that the inner critic is using. Imagine if your inner critic was, were to uh, receive some training in compassion <laughs> and still be a critic. What would that look like? Right? How many of you have an inner critic that's a compassionate inner critic? Nice. <laughs> Not all the time. <laughs> In this retreat, uh, and I think maybe what I'm doing here in this talk is uh, bringing up this, uh, in bringing up this joining of wisdom and compassion, the wisdom side of things, right? Wisdom and compassion being two sides of the same, uh, the same coin, and they come up together. In the wisdom side of things, as we chanted this morning with the hymn to the perfection of wisdom, right? There's no inherent nature in things. There's no separation between self and and other. There's no inherent existence. The compassionate side of things comes up alongside that. Because if there's no separation, then how can you, uh, you know, what is needed in order to shut off compassion? is to have that separation. That separation is key to shutting down compassion. Right? So when we practice deeply in a wisdom tradition like this one, right, we practice deeply just seeing things without creating the story. Or if we do create a story, we don't believe the story. We realize, we recognize it. This is a story. Maybe this is a story that my inner critic has concocted because it's trying to protect me. 
right? Do I have to believe what it says? Maybe my inner critic is saying, you're going to fail. You're no good, right? Do I want to believe that? What happens if I believe the inner critic in that sense? Does that lead, from, lead to me being uh, uh, in touch with my Buddha nature? Does that lead to the practice of taking everything that I do as a manifestation of living for the benefit of all beings, including myself? No, it actually cuts us off from that. The founder of this temple, uh, Shinbo Zenke Blanche Hartman, I want to read a little excerpt from her book of Dharma Talks, Seeds for a Boundless Life. She says, Suzuki Roshi used to say, see everyone as Buddha. See each being as Buddha. See yourself as Buddha. And if we're all Buddha, if we are all interconnected like that, or inter-are, as Thich Nhat Hanh, a renowned master of Vietnamese Zen, would say, then an all-encompassing love has to be our experience. So for me, having that understanding, I just don't know how to say how meaningful it is to me and how much I hope you will have this experience in your life of this warm-hearted connection with everyone, with all beings. We are interwoven with each other. I am in you and you are in me. And to come into your own realization of this deep connection that you have with all beings is the greatest gift that you can receive. Again, trusting this. She goes on to say, even though you sit trying to have the right posture and counting your breath, it may still be lifeless zazen because you're just following instructions. You're not kind enough with yourself. You think that if you follow the instructions given by some teacher, then you will have good practice. But the purpose of meditation, wait for it, (laughs) is to encourage you to be kind with yourself. Do not count your breaths just to avoid your thinking, but to take the best care you can of your breathing. If you are very kind with your breathing, one breath after another, you will have a refreshed warm feeling in your zazen. When you have a a warm feeling for your body and your breath, then you can take care of your practice and you will be fully satisfied. When you are very kind with yourself, naturally you will be able to feel like this. Again, this is an example of memitsu no kafu. This careful attention to the detail, to details, is a family way. And then she says in in another talk, she says, sitting sashin, or sitting a retreat, helps me to look at my life, to put on some glasses maybe, that focus better than when I am not sitting in sashin. Once I was working on using the mudra as a receiver of whatever comes in and working on keeping a smile on my face. I mean, I was really kind of working on the details of how I understand to sit zazen. And at some point, I was just flooded. I felt a tremendous warmth and energy and love and compassion that just flooded me. It felt as if it were coming from everyone in the room, in through my mudra, filling me up. It started with gratitude, but it built into a warm energy 
that made me feel so imminently connected with everyone in the room and wanting to sit with this room full of people who were studying how to live their life so as to benefit all beings. That is a pretty rare opportunity to be in a room full of people in that way. So here we are, and we are um, in a room full of people in this way. I hope you can feel it. And I hope that in the uh, in the process of just paying very careful attention, just paying careful attention to everything that arises, not just what happens outside of you, but what happens inside, paying attention to your inner voice, to the inner workings of your mind and your body, that through cultivating this presence that doesn't have an agenda, that doesn't happen to uh, uh, be an agent acting. When we cultivate this beyond human agency, what is that we find? What is it that we find? Is this fundamental ground, which we might call Buddha nature, the relaxing of all these? parts of ourselves that may be carrying uh, frustrations and, and wounding, right? If the parts come up and they have wounding, what, do we, what does Buddha nature do? What's the appropriate response? Cradling, right? Connecting, being with, being present, as you said before, right? This is the hand that goes, reaches back in the middle of the night without any thoughts. There's no thinking needed. Going back to that case uh, of Yunyan's thousand uh, story of the Bodhisattva of Compassion, there's a verse that I read by one of my Dharma brothers. He wrote this after reading this, this koan. Yunyan's great compassion Open the night eye, the all-gathering-in eye, of the yearning, the yawning heart of this world. Grope with the night hand, the transparent lotus hand, with all sentient beings already held on its palm. I'll read it again. Yunyan's great compassion, open the night eye, the all-gathering-in I, of the yawning heart of this world, grope with the night hand, right? this night hand, this transparent lotus hand, with all sentient beings already held in its palm. So how do we be like this? That's the question of a lifetime. Thank you very much.